Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Vesplega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So just to make sure that we're all on the same page, I'm going to talk about what those are. So when people say pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, what we're talking about is this blue box down here. So an individual who's been prescribed a medication before an HIV exposure to protect them from an actual HIV infection if or when they get exposed. Now for PEP, or it's also called NPEP, occupational PEP, or post-exposure prophylaxis. That's where when someone is exposed to HIV, they're immediately started on antiretrovirals to prevent an actual infection from occurring. And that's taken for a short period of time. And that's represented by the green box on the slide here. All right. So we are going to talk about PrEP first. So HIV testing recommendations, which is something that needs to be done before anybody can start PrEP. Again, the CDC recommends routine testing for all individuals aged 13 to 64 years old in all healthcare settings. I challenge anyone listening to this conversation today that if you have not had an HIV test in your entire life, now would be a great time to get it because that's an excellent experience that you can talk about with your patient or relate to your patients who are getting an HIV test. And it's recommended to repeat testing at least annually for individuals who are at high risk or has a risk factor identified. I went ahead and listed those risk factors there, and these are all based on the PrEP treatment guidelines. So the main categories are men who have sex with men, heterosexual individuals who are sexually active, and then active injection drug users. And some common risk factors between those different groups are people who have multiple sexual partners, people with inconsistent condom use, individuals with a recent sexually transmitted infection, or any kind of commercial sex work or injection drug use where sex is exchanged possibly for drugs or money. And then the United States Task Force gave a grade A recommendation to offer PrEP for any individual with a identified risk factor as a grade A recommendation for any individual at high risk of HIV acquisition. And recently, any individual being evaluated for PrEP should have that covered by insurance based on this grade A recommendation from the USPSTF. I wanted to bring attention to what the projected indications are for PrEP just in the United States. So this is an estimated number of individuals, not necessarily who. So this was done prior to 2019. And I say prior to 2019 because a new drug was approved for PrEP in 2019. So this is all based on the first drug approved for PrEP, which was intracytamine tenofovir DF or TDF as I'll refer to it, brand name Truvada. For MSM, it was estimated there's about 25% of individuals who identify as MSM between the ages of 18 to 59 who would have an indication for PrEP. And that correlates to around a half a million individuals. If we go down to the next risk group of heterosexual sexually active individuals, that's another almost 750,000 individuals or about 0.2 and 0.6% of individuals that identify that that would have an indication for PrEP. So overall, we're talking around 1.2 million individuals likely have an indication for PrEP in the United States. We don't have anywhere near that many people on PrEP, and that's probably beyond this presentation, but that's how many are projected to have an indication. And once you have someone on PrEP, so to prevent, if you're talking about risk versus benefit here, the medical cost savings of averting 
one HIV infection is conservatively estimated to be around $230,000. And I say conservative because it's likely more than that. Whenever you consider time off work, going to the doctor's office, lab tests, and medication throughout that person's entire lifetime. Like I said, the first medication approved for PrEP was intracytamine TDF, brand name is Truvada, and that is represented by the box on the left that was approved in July of 2012. And then recently, or in 2019, the updated formulation of that, intracytamine tenofovir alafenamide, or TAF, brand name Descovy, was approved in certain populations in 2019. And it's really important to understand the differences between these two medications whenever you're looking at which one is going to be appropriate for individuals receiving PrEP. So the box on the left, or Truvada, FTC, TDF is going to be for any individual with a known risk factor. So your men who have sex with men, sexually active heterosexual individuals, and IV drug users, adolescents weighing over 35 kilos. And it's recommended for any individual with renal function above 60 mLs per minute. Now the updated formulation, Descovy or FTC-TAF, is only recommended right now in MSM and transgender women, including adolescents at least 35 kilograms that identify as an MSM or transgender women. It does not include individuals with IV drug use that don't also have MSM or transgender risk factor. And it's also not indicated below a creatinine clearance of 30 and not for women with a risk factor of receptive vaginal sex at this time. I will say studies are ongoing, so I expect that to likely be updated in the future. But right now, those are the specific indications between those two medications. Now that I've talked a little bit about the different medications, I want to circle back and talk about some of the efficacy. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because it's relatively basic but it's hard to talk about PrEP without talking about some of these studies. And so early on, back in 2010, the IPREX study was published, and some of these other early studies for PrEP were published, and all of these were what I'll call clinical research studies. So they were looking at the efficacy of PrEP compared to placebo, because at that time, we did not have an established efficacy for PrEP yet. So everything was based on placebo. And so what you see in the IPREX study, they looked at MSM who were at high risk for HIV acquisition. And it was a relatively large study. And you'll see in the adherence adjusted efficacy, which was based on drug levels, it was 92% effective. So individuals who said that they were taking drug, who also had drug levels present to confirm that, had a high rate of efficacy. So if they took the medicine, it appeared to work. Similarly, with the heterosexual population in the Partners PrEP and TDF2 studies, you'll see the adherence adjusted efficacy is also relatively high between 84 and 90% of individuals in those studies who had drug levels present and said that they were taking drug the medicine worked. The modified intent to treat percent for adherence is a little lower in all of those studies just because of how the statistics were working. But again, I think the main thing that we're looking at here is if you look at the adherence adjusted efficacy for individuals who said that they took the drug, had drug levels confirming that, so they were taking drug, it appeared to work. Now going down into the real world data, and all of this is with the older formulation of Truvada or FTC TDF, all of these were done mostly open label. So all of the individuals who were taking this knew that they were on PrEP. And so what you'll see there is the rates of efficacy were much, much higher in that intent to treat because people in the studies knew that they were getting PrEP. They didn't have that doubt of if they were getting placebo or not. So all of these studies and in the Kaiser study in particular, which was done 
here in, in the U.S., there were no new HIV infections reported in that study, and all of these were in high-risk individuals. Those real-world studies were done after we had already established that PrEP was efficacious, and it was really being done. A couple of them are looking at different strategies, and I'll talk about like the Ipergay study here in a second, which is looking at a different strategy, but it was wanting to know if PrEP in real-world settings was as efficacious as it was in a clinical research setting. And so a question I get asked frequently is how much adherence is enough adherence? And of course, I have to always say, well, it depends. As a pharmacist, when I'm wearing my white coat and my badge, I have to say that, of course, they should take every dose. Every dose matters and they should take it exactly as prescribed one tablet once a day. But since this is a CE presentation, I wanna give you what the data is behind that. So what you're looking at, this is data from the IPREX open label extension part of the study. So this is in high risk MSM individuals, so only men. And what they looked at here is on the left, it was the HIV incidence. And then along the bottom is the drug levels of tenofovir present based on how often the patient reported that they took the medication. So this is all stratified based on the patient's adherence. And so what you'll see on the left part of the graph in the blue or the gray is that individuals who said that they took less than two tablets a week really had a much higher incidence of getting HIV, similar to people not on PrEP. But as you go further to the right in this chart, as you get over to four to six tablets per week in the green section, you'll see that those lines at the very bottom, that curve, almost are overlapping each other. And so individuals who are MSM and at high risk for HIV, so they're engaging in anal intercourse, insertive or receptive, appear that if they take PrEP for at least four to six pills per week, it appeared to be at least 96% effective. And then for individuals who took seven tablets per week, you can see that those lines absolutely overlap and their risk was essentially zero. On the left, when asked, you know, how long do I need to take this for it to be considered effective? So based on expert opinion, an individual would need to take it for at least 20 days for a blood or vaginal tissue exposure, but at least seven days for rectal tissue exposure. To summarize, and again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think that this is really where pharmacists can have an impact on PrEP uptake and keeping individuals engaged with PrEP. So this is a huge part of it, is counseling on adherence and making sure people are taking PrEP like they're supposed to. And right now in the United States, it's recommended that PrEP be prescribed as one tablet once a day, both for Truvada and Descovy. So this chart on the left is talking about the effectiveness in all of the studies that have been reported. And some of those we already talked about, like on the previous slide, the FemPrep, the Ipergay, the Iprex study. Along the x-axis on the bottom is the percent of participant samples that had a detectable drug level. So essentially what you can see here, and it's talking about adherence, is individuals who had drug levels present. So going further to the right, individuals who were adherent, had drug levels present, essentially the drug had higher efficacy for them. So it completely makes sense. If individuals are taking the drug, it's working at preventing HIV, it's more effective if they take it. Okay, now I wanna talk about some investigational strategies or some strategies that may be recommended elsewhere but not in the United States yet. However, patients and members of the community are aware of some of these and so you may get questions about it. So I at least wanna go ahead and give you the data because this is what is being talked about and discussed at conference around the world. The first one is called PrEP on Demand or PrEP 211. This was the Ipergay study, which I've mentioned a couple times now. It was done mostly in France, but also a study site in Montreal. And what it was doing is it was still using FTC TDF or Truvada for PrEP 
but it was looking at a different strategy. So instead of taking a dose every single day, what this study protocol said is that individuals should take two tablets of Truvada two to 24 hours before an anticipated sexual encounter. And then they would take one tablet 24 hours after that sexual encounter and another tablet 48 hours after the sexual encounter. If there were multiple sexual encounters, so one on Friday and Saturday, they would continue taking one additional tablet 48 hours after the last sexual encounter. And what Ipergay was able to show is that there was a 97% relative risk reduction in individuals. And these are all very high risk individuals who were having, you know, multiple sexual partners throughout the month. And that's indicated by, if you look at the median number of pills here on the right that were taken, 18 pills were on average taken per month. So that's a little over four tablets a week. So thinking back to how much adherence is needed, again, if MSM individuals had at least four tablets a week, it showed a high degree of efficacy with PrEP. And so these individuals were getting a little over four tablets a week just based on taking it on demand or when they felt they needed it. And so this was very, very efficacious for high-risk individuals with MSM. Now, this only applies to MSM. It's not exactly the same in female individuals because the levels of TDF are different in rectal tissue versus vaginal tissue. I don't think I have time to go into all of that detail today, but I just wanted to point out that this is really just for MSM individuals. Another strategy is called vacation prep or epi prep. And this is where if individuals are going on vacation where they think they may have multiple sexual encounters, they can take prep for seven days prior daily, prior to leaving on vacation, taking it daily while they're on vacation, and then for seven days after vacation. And another thing I want to point out with this slide is PrEP only will protect against HIV. It does not protect against other things such as pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections such as syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea. And if someone has a sexually transmitted infection, that can also increase the risk of getting HIV through sexual intercourse regardless of PrEP. So it's still going to be important to counsel on the general things such as condom use, minimizing sexual partners, those types of sexual health counseling. Another investigational study I wanted to discuss is the HPTN-083 study. So this is done, it's with long-acting cabotegravir. And again, it was just done in high-risk MSM and transgender women. And what this study was looking at, it gave the cabotegravir as an oral tablet compared to Truvada, so FTC, TDF, but one person was getting placebo plus cabotegravir and the other group was getting Truvada plus placebo. And so individuals would take the oral tablet for four weeks. After that, on week five, they would get their first injection of cabotegravir, long acting. They would get another injection of cabotegravir four weeks later, and then they would get cabotegravir injected every eight weeks thereafter. So there were two groups. One group was getting the active injection, active drug injection with a placebo tablet. And then the other group was getting the active tablet with placebo injection. And the Data Safety Monitoring Board actually stopped this study early in May of 2020. They stopped the blinded portion because there was overwhelming efficacy with the cabotegravir. There were 38 infections in the oral arm and only 12 in the cabotegravir injection arm. And so the interim analysis showed that cab was statistically superior to the oral FTC TDF and there was overall a 66% reduction in new HIV infections with the long-acting cabotegravir with this. So there is expected to be some updated PrEP guidelines come out in 2021, and I believe that this is expected to at least be included in that or considered for that, assuming it has FDA approval by that time.
Another new formulation for PrEP I wanted to talk about is, again, tenofovir is an excellent agent for PrEP, and so using it in different types of formulations. So here it's being used as an implant, similar to the contraceptive implanon. So this is a long-acting formulation that could provide protection up to a year. The nice thing about this that probably has an advantage over the injectable formulation is that if someone's having a reaction or wants to discontinue this, all it needs to do is take this implant out. It can be removed. There are some patches or some biodegradable polymers that are being developed as well as it's also being used in vaginal rings along with contraceptives. So lots of different types of formulations being investigated for PrEP as well. And then also I have to talk about some of the vaginal rectal topical formulations that are still in clinical studies. So most of them do contain tenofovir. Some other studies also contain things like depivirine, which is an investigational agent, and Mraviroc, which is an approved antiretroviral as well. Most of these are considered well tolerated, but the studies so far have really lacked strong efficacy data. And that's because adherence to the protocols has been really poor throughout the years. Getting patients to accept it and culturally being able to to accept doing a vaginal or a rectal gel prior to intercourse can really be challenging. So, you know, for instance, some of the protocols where they needed to use the gel two hours prior to intercourse and then two hours after. So really planning and making sure that they're following that exact protocol whenever they're using these on-demand or topical products has really been a challenge for researchers. So I do still expect to see future studies because this is still a viable option. It's just they're struggling, I think, a little bit with formulation. As I talked about the HIV care cascade earlier, there's also a PrEP care cascade, and I wanted to bring this up because there are several areas that are emphasized in this care cascade, and pharmacists have a real potential to impact several of these areas for individuals who are on PrEP. The first one is PrEP awareness, identifying individuals at risk for HIV, as well as raising PrEP awareness and advocating. So as pharmacists are out in the community and are you know helping patients with their medications, you can see their medication profile. If they have medications there that may indicate that they are at risk for HIV, that might be a good reason to go ahead and talk to them about PrEP. For individuals who are already on PrEP, absolutely talking to them about adherence at every single patient encounter, making sure they're linked to their doctor's office and getting labs and following up regularly. And then with that, you know, adherence and retention with PrEP. So making sure that they're following up doctor, they're getting the correct labs, and they're taking the medication correctly. Since adherence is so important with the efficacy of PrEP, Pharmacists truly have the opportunity to make a difference in how efficacious individuals on PrEP can be. So syndemic theory has been growing in popularity as we work to understand the HIV crisis and is defined by Merrill Singer in the late 1990s as two or more afflictions interacting synergistically, contributing to the excess burden of disease in a population. The essence of syndemic approach is to incorporate biological influences, psychological influences, structural influences, and behaviors to get a better understanding of the social disparities to disease vulnerability and epidemiology. Though work in this area is relatively new, consistently data attributes higher incidence of HIV infection within the Latinx, transgender, Black, and other marginalized communities to multiple co-occurring public health problems, such as violence, victimization, substance use, poverty, trauma, and incarceration. More importantly, or at least applicably, it is that the concurrence and effect of these problems requires a multifaceted approach and access to care in order to break down disparities and improve outcomes amongst these marginalized communities. These theories are not new, but only in the past decade are seeing 
tangible change and application. An interweaving of social, political elements and healthcare delivery is a unique and quintessential component of why folks like us are involved with HIV care and prevention. It is what draws us to this type of work. The recently COVID-19 pandemic is getting more press and study under this endemic lens and highlighting some of the social disparities to access of the healthcare system. Those within the HIV sector have been talking about for quite some time. Pharmacists and supportive pharmacy staff have had scopes of practice increase at an unprecedented level over the past 18 months. Most recently in the Ninth Amendment HSS PrEP Act, allowing for limited prescribing rights for COVID-19 treatments and states across the country are lifting test to treat scope of practice limitations within their pharmacy practice rules. What we are seeing is a systemic recognition of pharmacists unique position within the healthcare system as a low barrier access point to prevention and treatment of disease. As we look at social barriers to PrEP uptake, HIV incidence and care in general, access becomes a major concern. However, if we look at synergistic social epidemics, altered intervention points emerge for clients and patients to enter care. Medicalization is the process of defining human condition or problem as a medical condition that can be studied, diagnosed, prevented, and treated. As it relates to HIV prevention, medicalization is a double-edged sword. On the one side, emergence of PrEP created a more tangible, definable, and studyable intervention strategy to evaluate the success and reduce HIV incidence. On the other side, risk factors and behaviors were becoming scrutinized in new ways and generating new biases, or at least the perception of new biases around sexual health. To be most effective, we need to land in the middle, development of data-driven solutions and normalization of sexual health conversations as a component of self-care and as a primary care intervention. As Eric mentioned, HIV disproportionately affects the black and Latino populations. CDC's 2019 racial and ethnic disparity data suggests that the greatest barrier to PrEP utilization in these populations is not knowledge of PrEP's existence, but rather the engagement and willingness to engage in meaningful discussion with their healthcare providers. Very similar trends can be seen when you look at the data by economic status and stability, regardless of race and ethnicity as well. As an integral part of a patient's medical home or care team, with high accessibility, pharmacists are uniquely poised to collect and respond to data associated with medicalization in an environment largely separate from the existing medical establishment. Success of PrEP initiatives and programs are largely determined by preparedness and incorporation of a large range of related factors. Many of these related issues fall somewhat outside of what would be considered standard scope of practice or operations for the pharmacy. I have had the fortune to work in both community retail as well as clinical systems pharmacies, and the barriers to comprehensive pharmacist-led prep are strikingly similar. Leveraging a pharmacist walk-in or phone-in availability, as well as the routine and expectation of a high-touch model for refill management, helps in resolving barriers associated with the access to stigma. Components associated with eligibility, standardization, documentation of monitoring, and evaluation of guidelines can pose challenge, but most of these can be worked through in the development of collaborative practice agreements needed in most states. Linkage to care and inclusion of STI treatment and screening and comfortability with sexual health patient counseling tend to be consistently the most difficult elements. And the first thing to get started with comprehensive and quality prep programming is to get comfortable with talking about sex with your patients. First, you need to know who are their partners. How many do they have? And what are their physical and or identified genders? 
the types of sex that they are engaged in, whether that's vaginal, oral, anal, whether they're insertive, penetrative, pregnancy, whether that is relevant at all to the conversation or whether it needs to be considered or prenatal care needs to be considered in that patient's plan. Doing an evaluation or understanding of that patient's current level of protection and their interest in pursuing a higher level of protection. And also taking a quality sexual history. What type of sex have they had? When have they had it? And how many partners have they had over time? And last and possibly most important, getting used to the language that your patients and clients are using. At bare minimum, you need to understand that vernacular, understand that verbiage, and at best be able to utilize it right back to those patients to establish a rapport and a care quality that will open up your patients and be, create a willingness for them to communicate with you. So after you've educated yourself and your comfortability with having a sexual health conversation with your patients, you need to work on collaborative practice arrangements. No matter what practice setting you're in or physical state that you practice in, a quality collaborative practice agreement should be established. If you're fortunate enough to work in states with open CPA policies or rules, or states that have established protocols or statewide protocols, the process is much simpler, but you'll still need to fill in some gaps and holes. Before you do anything, make sure you are pulling and reviewing your state CPA rules. Pharmacy practice acts tend to carry most of this information, but a lot of information can also be housed inside of the medical practice acts as the physicians and providers will be signing off to give you authority to do this work also have rules established and what they are allowed to sign on. Your CPAs are a roadmap that spells out the communication and workflow. So I typically find it helpful to write it out as a flow sheet. I dropped a sample of mine onto this slide so you can review. Please do not review this for uh, guideline accuracy as it is several years old. It is really meant to be just a visual representation of how a CPA should look as it flows. And you must establish task assignment within the pharmacy team who does what job, how often they do it, and how they communicate that they completed that job. If possible, automate communication as much as possible, but establishing a clear pathway to relay information within your team and with any external providers is absolutely essential. And whatever is decided, make sure you, that you do it. You wanna have consistent follow-through. This goes not only to the quality of your program, but the trust that you are establishing with your external providers, as well as your patients. You need to invest a large amount of time in the planning phase prior to rollout and engaging stakeholders of multiple care areas, including patients, time commitments in this stage is often significantly overlooked and underappreciated. The planning phase will allow you to act and improve on trust that you've already built, whether that is with internal providers or external partners. Programs should be built in an effort to overcome existing barriers, whether those are patient access barriers, institutional capacity barriers or financial needs barriers, you should be building a program that is intending to impact some form of barrier to care that is created by the patient's experience. Failure to do that will ultimately doom your program to failure itself, or at least be really boring. And that's even worse. If nobody knows about the program, no one will show up. Some elements of marketing or awareness building should be considered as part of the planning process. Social media campaigns, in-office signage, newsletters and email lists are inexpensive and effective ways of spreading the word and to targeted groups but no matter what make sure all team members are well trained in the program mechanics and how to get started sustainability planning is also exceptionally important and is an ongoing process as volume increases you should have anticipation of shifting that workload at each step of the process and plan on incorporating increased pharmacists or support staff and lastly, collect your data. Without collecting your data, you will not know what kind of improvements you need to be making over time, and you will not be able to replicate that same process or program in other sites. 
The other element of pharmacies struggle with that can be resolved easily is building a quality relationship with other departments, either within their organization at a health system or development of an external partnership. Of course, if you're working off a CPA, the external providers, you'll need to build a relationship with that office, but you also need to consider labs for blood work and STI screenings. Having a singular lab that you work with will streamline this process and ease burden. Insurance coordination to help those with coverage gaps or high copays. 340B covered entities generate unique revenue strategies and streams, but they also have specific coverage and requirements that you will need to follow. And social service agencies can help strengthen programs by providing assistance as well as social awareness of the program itself. Community-based organizations that provide STI testing typically have linkage to care strategies already that you can utilize and quality collaborations can help pharmacies increase the awareness and streamline this process. They also tend to offer more than one external partnership that you could bring to the table. You want to seize the opportunity. If a patient is standing in front of you, ready and willing to engage in prep care, you want to take that opportunity to get them into prep care if you have that capacity. There is a lot of data around rapid start prep as well as rapid start ART. Most rapid start models depend on brief social risk assessments and reliance on and confidence in physical and examination to identify acute HIV potential. Some baseline lab evaluations can be delayed or foregone before tablet starts. Just some data around that, Denver Metro STD Clinic did a recent study of about 100 patients, finding that the reduced time to start was the highest indicator of long-term adherence. The only thing that came close outside of that was economic status and overall literacy of the healthcare system. In New York, they did a retrospective review of the IPREX data and showed that delaying PrEP start for the first lab set reduced the overall increased likelihood of those patients to be retained in care by about 14%. Georgia also did some studies recently showing that a higher re-engagement of PrEP services were found for patients that had both a rapid start and from a pharmacist-led perspective due to the decrease in the barrier to pharmacists over other medical providers. Contact capacity with client is important for success here. You are assuming some risk, but if you are a provider, are confident that patients will be reachable, this risk is relatively low and the benefit probably outweigh the risk you have here. Just a story from our own personal practice. We had a client that was interested in engaging in care presented to our clinic for our pharmacist-led prep program, presented with a recent HIV negative screen that he was able to produce for us. We allowed this individual to start on prep while we ran labs. That person came back with a very, very high viral load of around 4 million. We were able to contact that patient who was actually in the ER because of his flu-like symptoms that he had not had the day before when he was at our clinic. And we were able to provide that high likelihood of diagnosis to the hospital that he was seen in. He was then rerouted back to our clinic, engaged in care and actively taking ART within 48 hours of his initial prep appointment. So that establishment that you have a patient contact mechanism is incredibly important. But again, the risk is very low if you do have that in place. Two scenarios exist that will make your heart sort of jump into your throat. The first is having an HIV positive screen. It will happen much like I just talked about. This has happened to us you know, more than once where a patient shows you do a rapid screen of HIV and you find out that this individual is positive. You need to be prepared to handle that situation. You need to be prepared to do it quickly and have as many warm handoffs as possible. That means engaging early on with 
other providers and external partners to establish a quality linkage to care program. You need to know exactly where they should be going, who they should be following up with to get there, what they need to bring with them, and why it's important to immediately go and immediately get checked into care. Ideally, you will have very soft, warm handoffs to these individuals so clients know who they're going to meet and know that that person has already been briefed on the situation so they don't have to re-explain themselves or go back into a detailed history of what brought them into the clinic that day. If done correctly, most of these answers can be handled by quality stakeholder meetings and planning. You just need to have those plans in place prior to starting any kind of prep program. The second situation is finding out that your patient that is standing in front of you is the victim of some kind of an assault. Sexual assault is included as a mandatory reporting requirement under HIPAA, and most states have additional legislation specifically calling out pharmacists as mandatory reporters. In general, education for counseling in this area is in need of significant improvement. That is a universal, I would say, failing of the pharmacist education system, but it is being improved upon. The reference I tend to use is the KIND moniker, making sure your patients know they are in a safe place, inquire about the observations and concerns that you currently have, notify the patients of their rights and your willingness to participate in this process, and then document and report absolutely everything. And most importantly, just be patient, be present, listen to your patients and what they are going through. Oftentimes these folks are very reserved in willingness to talk about the situation that they are facing, but knowing that they have a compassionate ear to listen to or they're more likely to open up to you. Most emergency rooms have sexual assault nurse examiner programs. I would say these are by far the most effective programs to deal with assault. We have included reference to a SANE program for Colorado's PrEP standing order. I recommend that you include SANE nurses or at least the organizations that have SANE programs into your early planning stages and incorporate that into your linkage to care program. SANE nurses are very specifically trained to take action and deal with the medical and forensic and potential psychological issues associated with an assault. And they're also trained as expert witnesses for any sort of court proceedings that may happen after this. This is an example of Colorado's finalized rule allowing pharmacists to prescribe for both PrEP as well as PEP. Now, this example is intended to highlight some key elements of effective rules and legislation for this process. In addition to current options with protocols for use, inclusions of future therapies is really important. Landscapes do change and you want to make sure that your legislation, protocols, CPAs, however you want to frame this up, are prepared to deal with any sort of change that can happen. Counseling points should also be included in rules because we want to do this right and we want to accept the accountability for what we are doing and we want to accept that accountability and documentation and legislation as well. And I'll do a fairly brief overview of current laws and trends around PrEP. So California was the first state to pass um, any sort of comprehensive PrEP bill associated with pharmacist-run PrEP back in 2019 and allows pharmacists to prescribe and dispense 30 to 60 days of PrEP. Colorado passed House Bill 1061 in 2020, allows for pharmacists to prescribe, and that language was very specifically to prescribe and dispense up to 90 days, and then with continued refills if appropriate lab monitoring is done and documented. Missouri House Bill 476 passed this year, allows pharmacists to prescribe and dispense up to 30 days of post-exposure prophylaxis. Maryland this year also allows pharmacists to dispense up to 60 days of PrEP or PEP. Oregon passed recently their house bill that very much reflects what Colorado did in 2021, and that is sitting on the governor's desk for approval. I fortunately got to see their standing order protocol that they are looking at. It is very similar to what Colorado had just recently passed and looks very nice.
And then also Utah has State Pharmacy Practice Act also to include PrEP and PEP, dispensing under scope of practice. So I point these out not as an inclusive list, but just as an overview to check your state laws and see what is already accepted in your areas. Again, this list is non-comprehensive, so you should definitely make sure that you're doing a consistent law review prior to initiating any sort of activities in this space. And know that in general, that syringe exchange, harm reduction bills are also being introduced and passed in Washington, Washington, D.C., Minnesota, Maryland, Pennsylvania. So this is a continual trend that I expect us to see even more access for pharmacists to be able to do this work as our scopes continue to expand. So main takeaways, you know, if you are working in a community pharmacy setting, creation of a pharmacist run prep program is going to be more complicated and very dependent on state laws typically requires a partnership formation with an external prescriber and does establish a niche client base for your pharmacy, which is great, but you do have more liability here, so make sure you plan accordingly. There are some significant advantages though. First, like I said, this does establish a niche client market for your pharmacy base and should bring in some new clientele. And you are the most accessible point in the medical system to be able to potentially provide these types of services. More importantly than that, the doors to a community pharmacy have no stigma attached to them. Everybody walks in them, whether that is for to pick up a bottle of Advil or to refill their birth control or to pick up their prep. Everybody walks into that space for some reason or another, so there is no stigma attached to the external doors of that facility. Within a health system, this is somewhat more restrictive as it pertains to access compared to the community pharmacy, but there are still obstacles and advantages here. The collaborators are easier to come by. The streamlined infrastructure is already established within rules and the ability to pull in those collaborators is much easier, but the general access is a little bit lower for overall patient rollout. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHB Official and thank you for all you do for your patients.